that's it. That these are the last bits of great beauty. And these jewels, whatever they may be, are all absolutely tiny. Hello, hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 32 from Pop and Closh Garden Podcasts. I'm Joff Elvig, a gardener, freelance writer and garden speaker from Gloucestershire in the UK. This podcast is produced with the help of my lovely sponsor, Genus Gardenware, and you can find out more about them by visiting genus.gs. In this episode, I talk to farmer and nature conservationist Derek Gow. Born in Dundee in 1965, he left school when he was 17 and worked in agriculture for five years. Inspired by the writing of Gerald Durrell, all of whose books he'd read thoroughly, he jumped at the chance to manage a European wildlife park in central Scotland in the late 1990s, before moving on to develop two nature centres in England. He now lives with his two children on a 300-acre farm on the Devon Cornwall border, which he is in the process of rewilding. Derek has played a significant role in the introduction of the beaver, the water vole and the white stork in England. I started off by asking Derek about his transition from Scottish wildlife parks to the south of England. So I started, I've been involved with the Rare Breed Survival Trust, the organisation that conserves the, the, the old cultural breeds of British livestock pretty much since I was nine. Um, my um, one of my friends gave my mother a Shetland sheep as a as a birthday present for me, and um, we didn't farm. We didn't have a farm when I was little, but eventually I ended up renting quite a lot of land and kept quite a large flock of rare breed sheep. Uh, and then eventually, when I left school, I decided I was going to become a livestock auctioneer. So I was a livestock auctioneer in Scotland for about five years. Um, and um, I worked in agriculture for that time. I mean, I was I was valuing livestock and buildings and trees and all manner manner of different things. But you know, it was never really what I wanted to do. I'd read Gerald Durrell's books when I was very little, and um, was inspired by his tales of daring do and great colour and smoking <laughs> trees to catch flying bats and and all manner of different strange creatures, and um, and. It, after about five years of working um, in a little tiny place called Bigger in the Scottish Borders, um, I was made redundant. And at that time, a colleague who was a manager of a country park in central Scotland asked me initially if I'd like to come and manage a much larger collection of rare breed domestic livestock they had, and then ultimately the small zoo that was in the country park. And that's really where my interest in, in other species began. And that would be in the kind of late... Um, in the 1980s, um, uh, that I started to, to work at Palace Ring Country Park in the outskirts of Cumbernauld. So, what were you there for before you headed down this way? <laughs> um, I was there, I think, for approximately five years. Um, and, um, and it was a time when the, the local authority were investing quite a lot of money in the development of the um, country park in all sorts of different ways. The zoo expanded, it became much, much better. And by the time we f- I finished, we had a fairly fine collection of, of chamois and European bison and white storks and all manner of different creatures that were European rather than just British. Yes. But in 1994, I was asked by the Sea Life Centre group to come down and start a, a project called Nature Quest in the New Forest. And it was their wish to create this kind of chain of, of mainland British wildlife zoos, which would go right the way through the island 
uh, but which, which which would show people um, the wild animals that lived all around them in completely different settings. And and zoos that had kept. Um, you know, badgers and foxes and things like that prior to that. I'd always kept them as a bit of a sideshow to the gaudy lions and glitzy cheetahs. And these would be kind of sad wee things that sat on a concrete floor with bars in front of them pissing on cells. And the most memorable thing you'd recall of the exhibit was the smell of their own urine. So um, they weren't, um, you know, they weren't, they just didn't show people how these creatures live. And the Sea Life Centre Group were very keen to do that. We um, travel quite widely through Europe to look at the very best of the zoos and, and wildlife centres that were there at that time. And we came back and we built Nature Quest. And it was this kind of Disney for animals where you could see badgers underground and black rats in this great barn building swarming over a, a park tractor. But the thing that became very apparent when you'd worked there for any great length of time was you couldn't just go out into the countryside and catch these things. They had to be animals that came from rescue centres that were maybe slightly disabled or they had to be hand-reared ones that had lost their mother or, 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 or. And in the end, this all was all going to involve captive breeding animals because, you know, we couldn't supply displays just with things that we went out and trapped when it suited us. And, and indeed, the wild animals were very seldom great display candidates anyway. What you needed was a another generation or two of animals that were used to the environments we created for them, and then they would display themselves very well. So very quickly, we became involved in this, or I became involved in this large-scale captive breeding project for water shrews and water voles and common dormice and pine martens and all manner of different things to create animals for exhibits. But then the more you had to do with all the other organisations that were working with them, the more you began to realise that you could not do this on your own. And then you started to see that they had agendas as well with regard to these creatures and they very cons very commonly involved their conservation. I assume at some point that came to an end. Did you then move on to the site you're mm. on now? No, that came to an end in um, about 1998 when the company decided that this or this thing they created was just too much of a pain in the arse. It was too complicated. There were too many people and too many organisations that got in their way. If they were running a query, it was simple. You just, you know, if a tank full of fish died, you went back out to sea and caught another tank full of fish and nobody gave a, a stuff about the mackerel or whatever else. Um, you know, they were exhibiting in their aquaria. So when um, when they decided that really this thing was just too fiddly and too intricate, it had been, uh, become very abundant to a whole range of different individuals, and it was an incredibly worthwhile and incredibly useful entity, but it didn't fit well into a PLC-type format. So mm -hmm. um, myself and a couple of chums, when we were, again were made redundant, um, Kept all the animals going for a number for a year, I think, and then eventually we moved them across a thing called the, the what has now become the Wildwood Trust in in Canterbury uh, on your Canterbury and Kent, and then eventually after working there for a few years, I decided I did not want to work for a trust or for a, a chief executive. I found very difficult. And, and at that point in time, I moved over to the West Country and decided to do my own thing. Did Did you start farming on your present site initially? I came and bought a cottage Sorry, here. Karen. Yeah, and then my mother died, and, and 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 for various other reasons, we were able to assemble a bit of cash. And um, I bought one farm, and then I bought another farm, and then I bought part of a third farm and some other little bits of land. And, yeah, I farmed it very hard. Um, we had up to about 1,500 breeding ewes. 
um, producing. I don't know what they produce. I mean, certainly two, three thousand lambs a year, um, 120 suckler cows, all their followers. And it was just, you know, I wasn't very good at it. I, 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 I knew enough of what I was doing um, to make the thing work in a rudimentary fashion. But um, we tried too many experiments with too many breeds and, and it just never really worked. And in the end, you began to look at it and, and you began to realise that what you'd done, even when we got to an end where we had, you know, this lovely flock of pedigree Flynn sheep and, you know, really good beef cow hair producing Simmental crosses that the market wanted. We got to the end of that and realised that actually we were doing we'd, we'd produced a complete uh, a complete facsimile of ec- economic failure that every other farmer around us was already was already <laughs> running in, in in exactly the same way. And not only that, but you began to look at what you'd done to the environment, and we totally ruined it. You know, too many animals. Too long a winter, too cold a spring, and and I remember seeing the last of the curlews, the last of the whimbrels, the last of the short-eared owls that were here, and and none of these things will ever be again. And I just decided it was not for me, so I I stopped doing that, and we then started to rewild the farm. Uh, rewilding, we all think we know what it is. Is is there a definition, or can you sort of encapsulate it in a sentence or two, or is it not that easy? <laughs> cultivating nature that's it i have no interest in debating what rewilding is or isn't the first people that used the term would you believe it that i know of were the nazis and 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 i think it was himmler and goring um you know well recorded as looking you know to to rewild half of poland to create a gigantic hunting reserve where the obese um herman goring was going to dress up in in green tights and a robin hood hat and parade around with a with a big gigantic spear impaling <laughs> reconstituted aurochs on it. I mean, the whole thing was a nonsense. So at the end of it all, it's it's whatever you mean it to be. But as far as I'm concerned, it's just about producing life, other life, and giving other life the chance to actually regain a foothold on on the soil of this earth. That 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 it, that, it, that it really has lost, um, you know, uh, in great measure because of us. Do, do you have any issues with the term itself? I'm sure I read somewhere that you might have called it new nature or something like that. Uh, or, or are you happy to use the term? The, the, the Dutch call it new nature. I, I really, I, honestly, I couldn't care less about a term. Mm. I, I just, I'm, I'm just done in life <clears throat> with debating rhetoric and names. I can't see the point in it. You know, lives are very short things. Before you know where you are, you click your fingers and they've gone. What you've got to do is fill them to the, the, the absolute brim with doing stuff and not talking about it. Because one day when the talking finishes, you'll look around and realise you've actually done bugger all. And, <laughs> and that's, that's that would be a terrible end. So not interested in debating rewilding new nature or whatever else. It, what we're doing here is we're cultivating other life. Yeah. So, so... You went from traditional um, livestock uh, um, and then re- replaced them, I guess, by sort of a, a low density uh, herds of what large animals like water buffalo. Have you have you got those there? We have water buffalo here, so we went from traditional livestock and we replaced them with a whole range of things that were significantly fiercer. So we had the only herd um, of heck cattle in the um, United Kingdom for a while. I've heard about those there. now. Yeah, Tell me about those. Yeah, uh, yeah they were shits. Do they just um, want to kill they're, you? They're, 
they tried to kill us on a fairly regular basis. And um, and we kept them for 50, I kept them for 15 years. And at the end of it, you know, you just look at it and think, well, I've tried and this is only getting worse. So uh, the last stand came when we couldn't load them on a lorry to an abattoir. We couldn't find anybody else that wanted them. And we shot the last 22 of them in the yard on our farm and had them burnt. Wow. Um, and that was it. And what we're now doing, to be quite <clears throat> frank, is we are moving to a place where we keep animals that do more or less what the wild animals did, but which are much easier to handle, much calmer, much quieter, much safer. So short, and, and also which have a function. So the buffalo, we have four buffaloes still here which we're looking to rehome at some stage because they're they're great animals for creating pond and pool and mire complexes. They can dig these with their big horns and excavate them with their big hooves. But we've put in many ponds. There are beavers here which are, are turning. <laughs> some days you're looking at it and you think, they're turning the whole farm into a world of water. But that's <laughs> as it should be. And the buffalo actually are, are not really living up to the function they can deliver. There is so much water here now that they just swim in the ponds that the beavers have made or swim in the ponds that we've made, and they don't dig anything because it's hard work. So <laughs> they'll move on to another another site at some stage where they can dig and excavate and do the good things they can do. And that will leave us with, with horses, either conics or ex-moors, um, white-bred shorthorn cattle, which are lovely, cuddly, happy cows, and um, and, and probably a few Iron Age pigs, and, and that will be it. And the beaver of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go from one extreme to the other because I know you you've been involved in um, the breeding, I think, and, and reintroduction of of harvest mice. Now that's something I, I, I've never seen a harvest mouse, um, but uh, they're out there, I'm sure. Um, t tell us about this this little mouse and, and any successes you've had. <clears throat> so har harvest mice are the, the well, they're so called after the harvest because, of course, at a time when corn was long and was cut by horses and agriculture was a, a slow and methodical thing, these wee mice would build would would climb up the stalks of the growing corn, build their their, their gloriously interwoven wee ball nests, you know, up high, forage through the corn, which of course did not have pesticides in it insecticized to, to find insects and, and the seeds of the other rare arable weeds that they'll quite readily consume. And then they'd live up in this canopy um, for the summer. And then, of course, when the harvest, and they would have time to have several litters of young before the, cro the corn was eventually harvested. And then when the corn crop was harvested again slowly, many of these wee mice would make their way back on the carts and the rickyards, and they'd live there you know, until the ricks were used, and then, of course, they'd be exposed and they'd be found in such huge numbers that they were called harvest mice. And, of course, that's all gone now. These these slow-growing crops are a thing of the past. Everything is super fast. Everything is sprayed with, you know, insecticides. And, and these tiny mice, I mean, we've created a landscape. We start to think about wildlife in Britain. We think of this incredibly tame land. I mean, you look at David Attenborough's wonderful program um, that's on the go at the moment. And what that wonderful program, with its fine cinematography, is showing you are, are, are the last. That's it. That these are the last bits of great beauty. And these jewels, whatever they may be, are all absolutely tiny. Tiny and incredibly fragile. And and we have a choice now, and this is where you know the rewilding thing or new nature doesn't matter what you call it. 
what matters is that you do something, is that you look at land that's utterly trashed, you know, that's got, you know, rich with potassiums and, and uh, or phosphates and nitrates, you know, full of chemicals, no landscape features, the great fen swamps all gone, the water all drained, the farm ponds filled in, everything everything mown straight in lines because we wanted it that way. And you say, you know, actually, no, it's not going to be this way anymore. This is going to have a different future. And then you start to join these. And that's why we've got to do this. And so when you start to look at tiny wee things like harvest mice and glowworms and, and tardigrades, and you realise that we're no longer on this island. And we haven't fought with creatures like the wolf for over 250 years. What we are doing now is it's not even a fight. It's it's the finale of destruction. Is the bonfire we've set has burnt so hard that it's destroyed the tiny things as well. And we've really got to look at how we address that and, and create a different, more balanced future for us all. We can't live without nature. We're part of nature, and it's essentially we look at you know now it's restoration. So to bring back something like the harvest mice, we're not looking at breeding a hundred and throwing them into a field we need to change practices as well you look you're looking at you i would definitely not put them into a cornfield because see that big thing <laughs> called a combine that's actually like a gigantic industrial mincer so no what you do with these tiny creatures you're going to look for areas of rough grassland sedge so if you look at area of land all those wee sedges that go down the um the, the right-hand side, which in summer are going to be tall with seed heads in them and which in winter will offer this lovely dense foliage that these tiny things can get into and create the little ball nests right at the base to survive in over winter. That's where you put them. You, industrial agriculture, you nothing lives there. Nothing. Yeah. So you have to look at other landscapes that people are prepared to cultivate and garden even if that is 350 acres or 2,000 or 10,000, and then you decide to put your creatures there. Yeah. Now, uh, another rodent um, made popular by Kenneth Graham was uh, the water vole, of course, in in incorrectly called ratty <laughs> in, in the story. Um, now, you're involved with um, breeding and reintroduction of water voles. Uh, it, 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 is it straightforward? I, I, I can imagine it being quite complicated, just getting them right. to breed in captivity, uh, firstly, and then finding suitable habitats for them. Well, it's straightforward if you do know what you're doing. And we've done this now for where I've done it and the, the marvellous people who work with me have done it for approximately the last quarter century. So we understand now very well how to breed water voles. Um, we didn't understand anything at all at the beginning. We made a load of mistakes. There's no book the for things, you. <laughs> well, there you go. But, but one of the things that you've got to bear in mind is that when we start to look at what we've got to do, we never envisaged a time when we'd be looking at these little creatures and saying, we need to produce tens of thousands of you. But if you're refilling an island that has, or, or, or Western Europe or landscapes elsewhere that have been so destroyed, it's a numbers game. You know, from a genetic point of view, you need to have many. You need to have many for the base of a food chain to ensure they survive. But the important thing about water voles is when you look at them as being small and squeaky and maybe a good dinner for a, a heron or a pike or an otter, what you've got to bear in mind is that these wee animals, by complicating 
the design of riverbanks by creating their very many burrows and holes. They create living space, you know, high-rise accommodation, you know, for frogs and toads and newts and grass snakes. If nothing's there making those burrows, then these things have got nowhere to live. And they're water gardeners, they, they're untidy feeders, they split open the heads of, of slag iris pods, they redistribute the filaments of, of things like watercress or water mint, which then float away and root again. They make lovely wee mown lawns around their burrow entrances, they enrich the environment underground by by creating these big latrine deposits of their nutrient-rich droppings. Um, and then finally, they are they are a prey item as well. A water vole's a, a clean meal, if you, you like, for a, a marsh harrier, because it's it's consumed no insecticide or pesticide or rodenticide, whereas if you as a marsh harrier have to, to then rely on brown rats, those things are full of so full of rosenticide that, that that one day they'll kill you. The buildup of the toxins in your liver will be such that you won't be able to survive, and that'll be the end of you. So when it comes to it, the loss of the water bowl is not a trivial thing. The loss of the water bowl is is an an event as far as nature is concerned of major consequence. Fascinating how it just trickles down, doesn't it? It's a whole web. Everything's in, interconnected. Now another animal I'm really excited about. A friend of mine has seen one. I live near the the Cotswold Water Park, um, he was driving to work and he saw a white stork fly over. <laughs> now, you, you know a lot about storks, don't you? Again, you're involved, I think, in, in the breeding of those. I'm involved in the breeding of those and I was involved in, in the original imports of the birds for the Netcastle estate and for some of the other estates in eastern England. And and what we, a group of us wanted to do with that bird was not really, it wasn't about re returning a single other species to Britain. It was about restoring functionality to landscapes because white storks, if you want an emblematic species that's spoken to us for all times, since the time of the Greeks and the Romans, you look at the stork, it's 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 associated through the, the great ages of intelligence with recovery, rebirth, renewal, restoration. And we thought this would be a great bird when it came to, to this idea of returning nature to Britain and making a visible statement that it should be so. And the Netcastle estate um, in Sussex were very keen um, to start the project. And what we did was we went to Poland. We asked the zoo in Warsaw if they'd give us very many of the birds that they get handed in every year, which have fallen out of nests or hit a power line to begin a breeding stock. They agreed to do so. And for two or three years, we imported hundreds of these birds in to found the flocks that are 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 now functioning at places like the Nepcastle Estate and some of the estates around it. I think there's a 22 nests, or maybe it's a 15 nests with more building nests there this year. They're hatching more and more baby birds every year. Some of these birds are staying in Britain, but some are migrating and coming and going. They're very gaudy, they're very noisy, they're not in the least bit bothered about people, they're not frightened of people at all. And one day as the population expands, they won't just be on the roof of Nep Castle or on the Great Oak Tees in the park, they'll, they'll descend from there to nest on, on people's roofs and bungalows you know, in the villages around there. One, one day one will be nesting on the roof of the co-op. And and what will happen is that gradually and and and, and with greater greater zest every year, the birds will re-establish themselves, become part of a wider environment for people, and people will look back to these. I mean, in Denmark, for instance, and in a landscape where there have been no storks because of agricultural intensification for about the last quarter of a century, there are still people who, who are employed to build artificial nests to try and encourage back birds that simply are no longer there. 
So these birds will build amongst people again, and people will wake up one morning, not to see a, a house martin on their wall, but to see this gigantic bird with a carmine red beak bill clattering to its partner and producing so much shit that their gutters won't accept any water. <laughs> and, and then if they've got small children, they will wake them up bill clattering at four o'clock in the morning, and by God, you won't be able to, to, to ignore the storks. But those birds will then prompt this whole conversation about what the landscape should be for. Should it be something we pay our taxes to poison near completely, or should it be something that we pay our taxes to, to largely and in part restore so that our harvest mice and storks and corn crakes calling in the, the dusk of a, of, of a hot summer's evening? So it's a landscape that lives and breathes and sings, or it's a landscape that's dead. Which would you like to pay your money for? <laughs> Quite. Now, you're very well known for your uh, reintroduction work with, be with beavers. Um, they, they were once native. It wasn't so long ago, was it? What, 200 years ago we had beavers in this country? The last bounty record is in 1789. If the last bounty record is in 1789, that almost certainly was not the last of them. It is very likely that beavers went on as a living entity in Britain, maybe, and until the mid-1800s, maybe, maybe after that. When I wrote the book Bringing Back the Beaver, I was contacted by this wonderful old woman who was 91 years old, and she recalled seeing beavers building a dam beneath a place called Wentworth Woodhouse on the Humber, on the southern side of the Humber, when she was a little girl and she thought she was four or five. All of the people who wow. saw them are, are dead now, but she was very clear about what they looked like, very clear about what they did. I went with her to look at the place where the dam would have been, and it's exactly the sort of wet valley bottom where beavers would have worked. And, and so we don't know when the beavers went. This idea that these things all died in great antiquity, that's not the case. What happened was that we ensured they could they were no longer a common animal, you know, into historic times. And then we finished the job with the last. So it's very likely that the great killing was something that happened, you know, over the course of the last two hundred, you know, two hundred years or so with beavers and wildcats, maybe even wolves. Um, but but by the time you get to to to, to the late eighteen hundreds, we're we're gonna ensure that job's done. No habitat, no food. Lots of us, lots of guns, lots of traps. We finish it. Yeah. Now, beavers obviously are great hydro engineers, aren't they? And this is seen as one of their benefits. How, how does benefit uh, an environment um, when they're creating these dams? It benefits it very greatly. They're water gardeners. They are the bringers of life. If you bring back water and you overlay the land with water, all life comes back to it. Just think of the frogs. If the water's moving all the time, then they cannot be. If you've got water courses that are, are full of silt, then just think of the, the bivalves, the peril mussels. They cannot be. And there can't be fish on clean, fresh, crisp gravels and spawning beds because the, the river's the colour of mud and it smells of cow shit. They, if you can't bring back beavers, you can't restore nature. They are they regulate the flow of water. So when if you allow them to make, create sort of large complex wetlands, uh, when you have um, flood events, then they break the peak of those events by four to eight percent. So they slow the flow of water, and and in doing so, create environments where things like sphagnum mosses and all sorts of other things collaborate to do this together. So you're restoring, by restoring beavers, you're restoring, uh, restoring a functionality of the land, its ability to regulate the flow and slow the flow. 
And who would ever have thought that, you know, the, the opposite of that in Britain, that we'd be looking at a time where we're saying, well, we need to have wet valley bottoms. Because see these fires and these droughts that are coming. If you hold water <laughs> in the bottom part of the catchment, then water doesn't burn. So you you can you can re-engineer landscapes that become tolerant both of droughts and of floods, and it's been quite interesting. I mean, I've been working on and off in Germany over the course of the last um, two decades to run field trips there to look at beaver management in Germany. And you go now to agriculture environments where the old farmers used to take out all the beaver dams all the time. And you look at what they're doing now. Now they're leaving them in. They're gently manipulating the tops of them so you've got a few inches of clearance, which is what you need to cultivate them. And then they realise, and these are not young men, these are not people who are, who are, who are greenies in, 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 you know, in, 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 in denim-type jumpsuits with clogs. These are old German farmers. They're not a forgiving bunch. But they know that if you keep that water in those drainage ditches, your land is irrigated and the crops will grow. So learning to live with the beaver is is it's like welcoming back an old friend, an old friend that can do things that are a bit schizophrenic sometimes. So sometimes they'll, you know, they'll chop down a cherry tree that's been planted in memories of somebody's, somebody's Doberman pincher called Floss that died 10 years before, or, or they'll eat their way through their boat deck or gnaw a hole through your garden gate because they can't be bothered having to go <laughs> around the side. But they're great friends. They're animals we need. And without these animals, we just can't regenerate nature. And ultimately, we can't start to protect ourselves from the extremes of climate either. Have you got the right sort of environment for them on your land? We have many beavers here yeah. now. Do, how long after introduction does it take for them to start to have an effect? This, well, I mean, the effect, you look at the drought last year. We have a stream in the middle of one farm, <clears throat> which has never, <clears throat> in the course of the last 20 years, ever not run. Last year, it was there was water in its deeper pools under the trees, but there was nothing running between those deep pools. I've never seen anything like it. And <laughs> in the, the medieval drainage um, kind of, um, ditches, gutters, which run along the bottoms of, of our, our ancient hedge banks, the beavers had made dam after dam after dam after dam. And the water was turbid and it was a bit smelly. But if you're a dragonfly or a frog or a water shrew or a water vole or a deer coming down to drink or an otter looking to hunt any of the, the other things that you're going to hunt, no water, no life. It's as simple as that. Are they making a difference? They sure as hell are. And over time as they embed, that difference will become greater and greater and greater and more and more important. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, are there any animals missing from the Derek Gow puzzle? Um, I don't know, wildcats, wolves, um, uh, what was the other? Lynx, European lynx. Have you been involved in any of those? Oh, I don't, I'm not involved with, with, with lynx reintroduction at all. There's too much talking and that's not for me. So we'll see how that other people can navigate that one. Yeah. Um, wildcats we are involved with. We are working with, with a, a broad consortia of organisations to return wildcats to England. At the moment, I think there are about 20 here, and, and we're looking to up that to, to create a population that will produce us the 40, 50 kittens we need to make a start at releasing these potentially into the southwest, but in the end, and into other parts of the British Isles as well. So, um, yes, I'm keen to see the wildcat project move on. And at the moment, I've just finished a, a book on, on the natural history and um, an and unnatural history of the wolf in Britain. 
And and I think we should start to think about other things as well. We will never, as a species, come to terms with 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 nature adequately until we've come to terms with the challenges of the big carnivores. And in the past, our response has always been for anything like this that challenged us at all is to destroy it and ensure it was not there. But in doing this, it's a, we we made huge mistakes. So if you look at Britain and you you hear to you know listen to David Attenborough telling you we've got a quarter of of the of, of the world's Eurasian badgers, well that's probably true. But the reason why there are as many badgers is because all the top predators have gone. The things that eat badgers don't live here anymore. The things that excavate them, the things that surprise them, and the cosy trails they make for evening ambles. If you've got wolves running around, you can't live like that anymore. Um, you know, and when they return, you die. It's as simple as that. So I think we should start to talk about the large predators. I think it's time for a change. Derek, where can people find you? Are you on social media or, or uh, I do Twitter or a website? And, um, yeah, we are down in Southwest. So if you look at www.rewildingcombshead, you will find our campsite. We run regular walks and talks from there. And if people want to come and stay in some of our shepherd's huts and see how we're changing the land, they're most welcome to do so. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, somehow last year, Derek, you brought out two books. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> but uh, you had uh, birds, beasts, and birds, beasts, and bedlam. And uh, have I got this right? When was your latest one, bringing back the beaver? So the bringing back the beaver was the first one, and birds both within about six months of each other, one. I think. Oh right, yeah. So, so the, the bringing back yes, the beaver one yeah. was, as you'd guess, probably pretty much about beavers, and the birds, beasts, and bedlam one was was about a range of the other species I've been involved with, and and the wolf one we're hoping is going to be out um, by the middle of next year. Thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating and uh, i know these things can grow arms and legs and go off in any direction but it's given us a brilliant overview of what you do and uh, and i i've got uh, got your books i recommend people read them because they're fascinating they really are a fascinating read so hard to put down um so uh, thank you for your time thank you very much indeed joffy take care bye-bye I never ask, but I know some of you have been really loyal listeners for some time. If you've got the time to leave a review on your podcast app, I'd really appreciate it. Tell a friend, or if you can tag me on Instagram and tell me which part of this episode you enjoyed the most, I'd love to see what you think. And would also love to be able to mention you and your Instagram account on the next show. One listener who's always really supportive is Gavin Edwards. Gavin's a professional gardener and garden consultant in Essex and Suffolk. He also runs gardening workshops and is a huge Sissinghurst fan. Why not follow Gavin over on Instagram where he can be found as Gardening Gavin. I can be found as Joff Elphick on Instagram and my website is joffelphick.co.uk. Don't forget to mention me to your garden club. I'm travelling most weeks to give my talk crayfish on the lawn, plants, people and natural history. If distance is a problem, I can still entertain your group anywhere on planet Earth through the magic of Zoom. And please, if you haven't yet had a look, pop over to genus.gs to see how they can transform your gardening experience by wearing clothes specifically designed by gardeners for gardeners. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow this podcast so you won't miss an episode. In the meantime, may your secateurs be well honed, your garden a thriving example of biodiversity, and your life free from the worries of killer cattle. I'll see you next time. Hey.